I think that the impossible has been something that I've always tried to interrogate in my work. And, you know, this was something that Judith Butler said very beautifully when she visited Occupy Wall Street in 2011. And she was, you know, talking about all the different ways in which people were saying that, you know, what, what's being asked for is impossible because nobody knows what they're asking for. And of course, we know what they're asking for. They're asking for everything that intersects with everything right. that is going to unsettle the status quo. And so, you know, her response was like, if if wanting this or that is impossible, then we demand the impossible. And it mm. was it was like a poem, like yeah. the way that she recited it. And I think that demanding the impossible is something thing that I'm I kind of feel an unapologetic you know kind of draw towards and and I think in my works what I've tried to do is to set up those prototypical situations where I can make that seemingly impossible thing happen as an artwork that's the voice of Michael Rakowitz the conceptual artist best known for his work that explores the fissures and contours of identity, politics, and culture. One of his best-known projects from 2011 took place at the Park Avenue Autumn Restaurant on Manhattan's Upper East Side, where he served venison atop Iraqi date syrup and tahini on, wait for it, plates looted from Saddam Hussein's palaces. For another project, called Enemy Kitchen, he worked with his Iraqi Jewish mother to compile Baghdadi recipes that he taught to various audiences, including middle and high school students. Begun in 2003, as U.S. forces were leading the illegal invasion of Iraq, the artist wanted to make visible Iraqi culture in a country where it was all but invisible. But recently, he's been making waves of another kind. Last December, he withdrew from the 2019 Whitney Biennial, after it became known that the vice chair of the museum's board, Warren B. Canders, was the owner of Safariland, a tear gas manufacturer whose products have been used everywhere from Standing Rock, Ferguson, the US-Mexico border, Gaza, and elsewhere. I invited him to our studio in Brooklyn to talk about this and another curious project that's embroiled in another controversy. This one deals with Leonard Cohen. Created for a major museum show in Montreal, with the singer's blessing, by the way, he was forced to withdraw the work he created from the touring exhibition devoted to the Canadian singer. When Leonard Cohen, a crack in everything, which is the name of the exhibition, opened at New York's Jewish Museum on April 12th. Rakowitz's work wasn't there. So we're going to hear the story from the artist himself. But first, I asked him to describe his work for those who may not be so familiar with what he does. Well, I would describe my work in terms of a formal language of being site-specific more than I would talk about it being something like social or a term that I hate, social practice. Mm -hmm. um, and I've always really liked working in contexts also where there's a bit of an evaporation in terms of like the line between mm -hmm. the, like this laboratory in which the work gets shown vis-a-vis -a, -vis a museum or a mm -hmm. gallery 
and how it enters into real life. So I always talk about my work in the frame of things that can yield things like uh, mark making and drawing and drafting and uh, sculpture, but also about the construction of, of encounters and events and also working with enzymes that shape proteins in a different way you know vis-a-vis right. the culinary yeah right wow okay so yeah. that's <laughs> but i mean you know it, it, it's it's, a, it's not really an elevator pitch is no it? it's not but i would say that i'm a sculptor but i also think that it's more important for me to do something to kind of disturb or complicate this language about what it is that we do or what i do i should say you know, because there is just such a desire for everything to be professionalized. And I think that things are a lot messier than that. Well, it's interesting when you use the word we, because I think your projects also have a communal aspect to them. They do. They yes. feel very communal. Yeah. So that's something you cultivate in your work, it feels like. It's very much a part of the work. And I think it came a lot from working with people like Dennis Adams and mm-hmm. Christoph Wodichko at MIT. And Dennis has this very beautiful thing that he says about his work, about it being a kind of a public art that enlists the viewer as vital collaborators in the construction of meaning. And so, you know, that can be more passive in some works, you know, say from like the 1970s and 80s. But I think it evolved for me and the generation certainly that's come next, you know, which has really amplified the essential component of it being something where there's a dispersal of the space in which the artwork exists and also something that makes authorship a lot murkier. Mm-hmm. You know, so I find that I get a lot from work that is able to be shifted through the different angles through which viewership happens, but also what people can bring to a project. You know, so for instance, the project in Philadelphia that was mm-hmm. about the Iraqi broadcaster who ends up losing his voice and then passes away, the way in which there was this like a kind of beautiful community that grew out of that to What's replace the title him. of that work radio silence radio silence yeah. yeah i mean that's a project that can't exist right. you know without the other voices and that's what makes it rich let's talk about the elephant in the room the, the whitney elephant. biennial small room <laughs> it's a small room big elephant mm. the whitney biennial and i don't mean just your but i think a lot of people are sort of waiting because there feel there feels like this I mean periodically the Whitney Biennial has these kinds of moments where sure. they become like flashpoints of our culture how they encapsulate that I don't know in an institution but it ends up becoming that hmm. in your case it was reported that you withdrew from the Whitney Biennial before is that correct? Tell me the full story. Of what's what's up with the Whitney Biennial? Well, the full story was that you know I was honored to be included mm-hmm. by the two curators, Rujeko Hockley and Jane Panetta. And so we were about two months into our discussions about what I might end up doing. And then this um, very brave letter that was written by the Whitney staff responding to the appearance of Safari Land Mm -hmm. tear gas canisters um, that was used against the asylum seekers at the border went live on on hyperallergic. And I was very moved and very proud to see Rujeko's name there, to see Chrissy Isles, but also Amin Hussein says this a lot more beautifully and eloquently than I do, but you know, it was like this miracle of interdepartmental alliance and solidarity in the way that that letter was signed, that there wasn't a hierarchy. And it was 
you know, all through the museum. When you said Hussein, do you mean Amin Hussein? Amin Hussein, okay. yeah. Part, um, part of the decolonize this place. Decolonize this place, right? place okay. exactly. And, and I think that that's a really important moment to behold and to sit with and to appreciate. And, you know, I've talked about it to people that what sets the terms for a lot of this is the brave work of people like Hans Hacke right. in 1971 with Sapolsky et al. You know, right. but all of a sudden, you know, here's a situation where it's not an artwork, it's art workers. And that kind of evolution of going from institutional critique to something else was very moving for me. And I was in touch with Rujeko and with Jane to more or less say that I was going to be following this closely. And did they feel that there was anything that we as artists could do to stand in solidarity and to help apply the, you know, the useful pressure that might need to be applied to make right. a change. And then, of course, all of this seemed to have fallen on deaf ears when the very polite but woefully inadequate response was written by the director of the museum, Adam Weinberg. And so it was at that point where I realized that I was going to have to make a decision for myself about right. whether or not this was something where I'm just going to find myself in a scenario where so many of these art exhibitions are just, I don't know, they're uh, spinning wheels and not going anywhere. And I was worried about, you know, whatever way that I could justify participating being something that would just be appropriated by the museum and would make the museum look like it could handle any criticism that was levied at it. And so I think a lot has changed since 1971 when Hans right. did that piece and, and everything is adjusted and the museum makes a very good, it does a very good job of turning those kinds of responses into product. So I... Ooh, that's a good way of saying it. Well, I, I don't mean to sound glib about it or I don't to think say you're that being it's... Glib uh, at all. I mean, I just, I understand because I, I think we're all feeling kind of like because I think when you use that term, it sort of it sort of represents the sort of the machine of the institution sometimes that sort of turns whatever yeah. you put into it into something, right? It's, exactly. it's kind of the nature of the institution. It's not personal. It's sort of like the way it sort of functions. Exactly. Yeah. And to sort of paint the picture for people listening and for you, I found myself in a situation where I'd signed a non-disclosure agreement. The Whitney doesn't tell you who the other artists are in the right. biennial. Right. It's not uncommon that there's that kind of embargo. What ends up happening later makes me realize why they do it. So it wasn't like I had artists that I could reach out to, to ask what they were going to do. And in the end, I remembered the gas, the tear gas canisters that I saw at Dar Jasser, Emily Jasser and Anne-Marie Jasser's um, residency mm -hmm. in Bethlehem and, and this beautiful this beautiful house that their ancestor built is right there at the border wall. And it's where the Shabab, you know, have their demonstrations against the Israeli army. And it's where those tear gas canisters end up in the garden. So instead of picking right. flowers, they're gathering the tear gas canisters. And right. these things for me are a very physical and visual symbol of bodies that are being evacuated from the world, either you know, through death or through displacement. And there was no way for me to reconcile right. anything. And I'm a sculptor and I'm visual. And so for me, this was a material evidence of the way in which there's a not so invisible line that connects the museum that's here in New York to spaces like the border wall right. and in Palestine and in Istanbul and in Kurdistan and everywhere. Right. And U so U.S. Mexico border. Yeah. 
And so when I was at MIT a few years ago, there was a scientist who told me that in science, when you want to know how a system works, you introduce a coloring agent. And so the Mm. gas was this incredible agent that made very visible Mm. and very, very clear the way in which the power structures had, you know, been redrawn or for me, maybe it was just illustrated in, in sharp resolution for the first time. You I just know? had a visceral response to that because it is really like when you say a coloring agent, it really does make something visible. It does. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like, and it's ironic, of course, being tear gas, which yeah. is sort of this amorphous sort of substance, but it has its own sort of connections and lines that exactly. we sort of see. So yeah. one of the things I've been thinking a lot about this issue is, you know, Adam Weinberg's letter, you mentioned it, but one of the things that occurred to me was how everyone I was talking to seemed like, really, that was the letter? I know. And it was like, who was that letter for? And did those people think it was adequate? Any thoughts on that? Like, well, who, who are those people? I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I have no idea yeah. because I, I don't know anybody who thought, oh, that's a great letter. Right. <laughs> like, right. That answered all my concerns. I haven't heard anybody say that. So I kind of wonder, is it like this sort of parallel universe we're living in sometimes in the art community? I think it's possible that we are living in many different parallel universes in in our field, you know. And But I think that there's a degree to which I think people who know Adam and the kind of person that he is and the degree of support that he's shown in the past don't necessarily want to give him a pass on this, but also understand that he's probably in what feels like an impossible situation. And I spoke to one of my mentors in the field of public art about this when I sought counsel on what to do. And he was very, very, you know, very careful in saying that he's not an unsavory person, you know, and he's probably sympathetic to the letter that I've written, for instance, uh, and what the staff wrote. But it's a horrendous situation that you know is not just a U.S. problem. It's not Mm -hmm. just about museum boards. It's about, you know, things like the philanthropy that ends up building a wing at the National Gallery in London or some other place, whether it's the Sacklers or or the Koch, you know, family. You know, like these kinds of things have been visible for a while, and there's no reason why we need to accept status quo. Right. Which is my point is that Adam Weinberg has to know that most artists I think support the Whitney's existence you know and feel some kind of ownership over that museum and that he would have collaborators ready you know to help in rethinking the way that these things uh, happen at the museum the way that funding happens Mm -hmm. and to actually yes engage with decolonization as a process which every museum really has to do and everybody says well why the museums well because the museums are fucking important you know, like everybody in this in this field wants art to be important or believes art is important. But right. then all of a sudden, when it comes to actually like pointing at something to do, it's like, well, why are you starting here? It's because it's important, you yeah. know. And so for me, I think I, I hate to think that somebody is imprisoned by a public relations manager who says this is the letter you have to release right so I'm living maybe naively under the assumption that he sometimes has to say things that he doesn't believe at all right you know right and when I wrote my letter and it was just addressed to Rujeko and to Jane and I haven't shared it in you know it hasn't been published in the press 
And then they asked if they could pass it on to Adam. And Adam wrote a very thoughtful response, requested a meeting. We had a very warm meeting. And then sometime in late January, somebody had started to leak the news that I had withdrawn from the Whitney. Mm -hmm. And I had wanted to keep it between me and the curators and at this point between Adam because they were the ones that really needed to know. Mm -hmm. And I also was very aware of, number one, in these scenarios, when the vectors point back to one person, you know, it can be the wrong scenario where it's about, you know, vanity or it's perceived as being about vanity. And it's also very easy for institutions to disregard a singular voice. True. The second reason was I did not want to put my fellow artists in a precarious situation where they felt like they were under pressure to refuse something that for them might be an essential part of their building a critical platform. And I'm not going to make judgments on what that is and how they should do that, but I did not feel like I wanted to speak for anybody else mm -hmm. except for myself, and I certainly wasn't going to spin my wheels trying to make a project about this. I certainly don't think that anybody should also be in a situation where they have to make work about this. Right. You know? Totally. Well, you know, coming back to why museums, I like to think of museums as sort of the R&D departments of our culture sometimes. Mm. Like, I feel like sometimes it's like, why museums? Well, frankly, we don't have a lot other somewhat public spaces to have these complicated arguments right. or discussions or whatever you want to call them. Right. If we don't have them there, where are we going to have them? Exactly. And when you think about where do your school groups go? Right. You know, I mean... I mean, they have big education departments. I mean, yeah. they literally have resources to interact with the public that almost no other institution probably has. Exactly. And you get students to actually enact these things in some ways behaviorally, where that's they do right. experiments or they react to what they've seen and they draw a picture. Right. And that's a foundational moment in a young person's uh, life, you know. So again, throwing kudos out to decolonize this place the progress that was made at the American Museum of Natural History to know that that horrible diorama right. now has something on the glass that impedes the viewer, you know, seeing clearly through it right. because it needs to be corrected. That's a step, Huge you know. Step. Yeah. And so I think that to your point, why museums? I'm I mean, I'm a father, you know, I have two small children and I think about those things that happen in their classroom, the field trips they go on, mm -hmm. what is it that is being developed in terms of a, a worldview? Those things are deeply important to me also as a teacher. Right. So that's that's one of the reasons, the other answers to why museums. They are, like you said, like the R&D department, but it's also where people come into contact with things that they may never get to see globally, like if they were to travel to places, you know? Right. So if you're going to have an encyclopedic museum, then the, that encyclopedia needs to tell the truth about how it was bound, you know? <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Having been to the Abu Dhabi Louvre, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's exactly what's I'm happening there. And playing the there. long game. The <laughs> yeah, long game. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The really yeah. long yeah. game. So, so one of the conversations I seem to be having with people more and more is where did the disconnect, has the disconnect between the public and the artists and the museum and the administration and the funders, I feel like there's a disconnect there. Mm -hmm. And I think other people are feeling that. But the question is whether that's just always been there and it's, an, it's just the way the institutions yeah. have been built 
or are we just seeing with the rise of like more and more inequality is it more what's your take on it you know i think it's maybe a question that artists don't ask much which is like who's on your board and now i'm asking it all the time and I think that it's the information's always been out there. It's you know, it's been in plain sight. But the the degree to which board members actually interact with the artists that show in museums is a bit of a mystery to me. You know even someone at your level. I mean, you know, I consider level? you like you're I mean you're everywhere. I consider I mean maybe you're not A list in the auction world, but you're an A list in my book. So like what That means the most you feel that way. And then, you know, it's funny, it's like similar like People assume that I don't have like issues or like whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 this, these are, everyone feels these. Right. Why? I do think that there's something that is a little bit nefarious in the way it's set up where it kind of, it's established as a hierarchy, you know, it's like, you know, before you see any of the artist names in the museum, you see the names of the board, Right. you know, if you can go to the Whitney museum, it's right there. It's vinyl text that is not coming off that window. You know, and so I think that that might be one of the reasons because it sees itself as separate, that it's like these decisions get made. And Adam Weinberg said that in his letter, you know, board members don't decide the content in the exhibitions, which I think is frankly untrue. I was about to say, who believes that? Well, I've seen many an exhibition about Palestine get closed because people on the board had dissenting views and were threatening to pull money. And so I think that that's that's a case in point. That's just one example. That's one of so many. Yeah, right. And there's probably examples from the 80s when it came to, you know, projects during the culture wars that were about AIDS and were about all different kinds of things. Or even certain artists that seem to be shown a lot in museums. And you're like... There's no real critical dialogue around those artists. Right. Or it's like, who? why are you showing that? Right. You know, where's that coming from? Right. Who's putting that in front of you? Yeah. It's like somebody <laughs> saying, I like Elvis. Oh, you know, you like Elvis too. Elvis <laughs> retrospective. Yeah, right. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> Scratch that because somebody might do it. <laughs> oh, trust yeah, me. I'm yeah, sure it's yeah. already on the agenda. Yeah. Oh, But the thing that I'm curious about is, you know, to what extent is it maybe time for there to be more artists on the board, you know, you know, like that would actually do something than not having someone like Fred Wilson have to fight all the battles on his own, you know, and Fred Wilson, for those who may not know, was an artist who did a very famous project in the early 90s, where he was looking at sort of the legacy of the museum and his connection to slavery and African Americans. And I believe he's on the Whitney board. Right. And so I could see him being very sympathetic to all of this. But, you know, when you're the only person that's in the room that's thinking this way or thinking like an artist might be thinking, then I think that it creates more of those disconnections that we're talking about. Right. And so I think that one of the things that I could see in terms of recalibrating all of this is to have artist representation, including also coming up with something that I talked about with Jillian Steinauer when she wrote the article for the New York Times, which was something that I also told Adam Weinberg, which was about the development of some kind of criteria. You have, what is it, like this consortium of North American museums, you Mm -hmm. know, and global museums, right, that decide on, like, what is the correct relative humidity for displaying works on paper and things like that. So, I mean, why shouldn't we have the same standards about philanthropy? You know, that's when I came up with, like, you wouldn't compromise the integrity of a work on paper and show it in unsafe conditions why would you compromise 
the integrity of an artist and ask them to show with funding and with permission from people that are making conditions unsafe for others. Right. And so this, to me, should prioritize and foreground the person making the work in front of the work. And it also does something to allow us to move forward in a way that it is indeed more ethical. Right. For me, this, this seems like a productive thing for us to discuss and it seems like a not so impossible ask yeah right well oof. that seems pretty ambitious though oh well, i, I think say. it's ambitious but i also think that changes are happening i mean yeah. i'm i'm very very grateful to nan golden and to what sackler Payne has been doing and seeing the way that there is a uh, some courage that is being displayed by museums you know that began with the National Portrait Gallery and then there was a domino effect where right. other museums started to follow suit. Well I think that also just points to the fact that it's like even as much as the art world wants to sort of advocate for an issue it really has to come from many places even in the case exactly. of the Sackler Payne. It's not just Nan Golden and Sackler Payne it was the fact that there are investigations and there are legal things and there's that artist who put that giant opioids heroin spoon in front of the Purdue headquarters mm-hmm. in Connecticut and it's like small little actions that really do feel cumulative. Exactly and in the same way that in teaching graduate students since 2006 when I moved to Northwestern in uh, in Illinois I found that there were more and more veterans mm-hmm. that were entering into graduate art programs and you know and this was because of the way in which people come back from these situations that are enabled by the military industrial complex and the people that make things like body armor and weapons and right. and they need to find ways to express themselves where language fails and art actually succeeds in those places right. and i've also started to see an, an increase in people who are coming from homes where there's a brother or a sister or a relative or they themselves are victims of the opioid crisis right and it's very it is, common it's very common and i think the people did not want to talk about it for a long time and now you know the ability to actually speak up about it has actually i think illustrated just how insidious the entire thing is and how widespread and i think we need to pay attention to those moments and not just try to you know throw them underneath the rug by showing all the good things that such and such a family does even though they're making something that's problematic you know to put it lightly and to actually you know to make that brave decision and say that even though the funding may not be replaceable so soon there's a different kind of a a making that's happening you know which it goes back into society well i always i always laugh at the whole funding issue sometimes because i'm like if this is where the funding's coming from, fine. But then why aren't people getting paid properly? <laughs> like, right. know, it's like, right. it's not like these are lucrative jobs that are getting paid and artists aren't making, you know, money off this. And then it's like curators are getting, frankly, far too little. Right. And it, so if this is where the money's coming from, it's like, I don't know. It yeah. Just, it just doesn't see sort of sit well with me. So now there's another topic I want to talk mm-hmm. about, which sure. is the current Leonard Cohen show, um, which is currently at the Jewish Museum here in New York. Mm. It started in Montreal at the Museum of Contemporary Art in mm-hmm. Montreal, and your work was shown in there. Mm-hmm. And what was the title of the work? I'm good at love. I'm good at hate. It's in between. I freeze. 
So now, do you want to just, before we get into the bigger issue that we're going to talk about, do you mind explaining the work for people? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll try to do it as briefly as possible. You know, I'm not one of these people that went to art school and loved Leonard Cohen. You right. know, um, <laughs> the way that it happened was I met the woman who would become my wife, who I fell deeply in love with, and when and she's from Montreal. And so when right. you fall in love with someone from Montreal, there's two things you need to do. One is you have to learn how to ski. And the other is you have to accept Leonard Cohen as your chief rabbi. Right. And know. also play it at your wedding, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I can't remember his songs being played at my wedding, actually. I tried to make it a happy affair. Yeah. Yeah. But the the project really has a, a kind of origin in 2009 where my in-laws for my wife's birthday had bought us tickets to mm. see him at the Chicago Theater. And it was amazing. And I just, it was like the most profound experience I'd ever had at any kind of event you know that was performative and it was like you know somewhere between an amazing rock and roll concert and the best Yom Kippur service that I'd ever attended and and I just became obsessed as I naturally do with anything I'm interested in mm -hmm. and when I went on to Leonard Cohen fan forums there was one post that actually caught my eye which was that it just simply listed the date October 22nd 1973 which was the day that I was born. And I always knew that I was born during the Yom Kippur War, during mm -hmm. the very last days of it. Uh, but when I clicked on this topic, a picture came up, and it was Leonard singing to Israeli soldiers in the Sinai during mm -hmm. the Yom Kippur War. And three years before that, I'd signed on to the Palestinian Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel and then eventually BDS. And so I thought to myself, you know, this is my newfound hero. What is he doing? You know, mm -hmm. and I started to read up on the story, which was fascinating that I won't go into here, but it's just, it's kind of this incredible narrative about a warrior poet, mm -hmm. you know, that's trying to make sense of his life by throwing himself into the line of fire. But then later on that year, I ended up at Al-Mamal Foundation for Contemporary Art in mm -hmm. Jerusalem to do another project. And while I was there, it was announced that Leonard was going to be playing in Ramallah, which was like met with cheers right. uh, people were just thrilled he's of course very popular amongst uh people around the globe but especially in places like uh palestine where like Ilya suleiman uses first we take manhattan and the kind of climax moment of his uh lyrical film chronicle of a disappearance and you know the he had his poems published you know with the permission of the islamic republic of iran in mm -hmm. farsi the editions sold out within hours. Wow, I didn't you know, know that one. And it's like, art obliterates politics. Right. Beautiful. And so, I was elated that, like, maybe this was him rethinking his position. But it turned out pretty quickly afterwards that the gig in Palestine was canceled because what was determined was that it was very much a kind of art washing. As Leonard had a date that was booked in Tel Aviv. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, in, in an effort to mitigate any... Uh, demonstrations at his concerts he wanted to be seen as being even-handed and right. to play a concert in Palestine so which by the way is something you know you often hear talking to Palestinians where they have this expectation it's like someone goes to Tel Aviv and then they go to you know Ramallah and it's it's kind of this both sides kind of thing yeah. that ends up happening yeah. yeah and I think there's a lot of uh, trepidation around that Completely. And yeah. and I think that it's important to read those words carefully that were written by people like Omar Barghouti, which is about, you know, the problem of putting the oppressor and the oppressed on the same footing. 
Right. You know, and to think that that you can enable, you know, the other side and then come to play for the victims and that, you know, and this is kind of what we're talking about with the Whitney as well. And so I started to become very interested in what was the fate of an artwork in the midst of something like boycott, like can the Mm -hmm. artwork itself survive? And so I found Leonard Cohen's typewriter through a, a super fan in Berlin, and I bought this typewriter from him. No way. Yeah, yeah. And so I decided I was... What kind was it? I it's an to... Olivetti Lettera 22, ah. olive green, made in Glasgow in 1959 and bought by Leonard in uh, 1960 at a shop in London. Wow. And so the serial number matches up and everything. And wow. So I decided I was going to write a film, and so I wrote the screenplay on this typewriter about Leonard's time in 1973, which was surreal. And then I decided I was going to write Leonard a letter hmm. about my position and to wrestle with my angel, mm-hmm. you know, the way that he talks about it and it's also spoken about as a kind of thing in Judaism. And I wrote to him, and the kind of conclusion I came to was that he made a decision, he approached from the West and made one decision. I approached from the East, from Baghdad, where my Arab Jewish grandparents are from, mm-hmm. and I make another decision where I won't uh, show my work in mm-hmm. Israel. But could these lungs, these Arab Jewish lungs that would not sing in Israel, could I sing Leonard's songs in Palestine? And could I deliver the concert that he was supposed to deliver in 2009 and also play it with Palestinian musicians who love his music? And also he started to populate his songs with things like Ud and Mm. even a little bit of Kanun here and there. So I wanted to see what that would be like, you know, Mm. like if voice is the brief articulation of a tube, then the air that comes from my lungs and and this, this voice can maybe make the artwork appear in Mm -hmm. a kind of impossible situation. So Leonard never wrote back, but then the Museum of Contemporary Art in Montreal heard about this project and said, listen, we're doing an exhibition (laughs) with Leonard's involvement. We're actually honoring him on the 350th anniversary of Quebec as our laureate. And we wanted to do an exhibition and apparently Leonard's conditions was that he wasn't gonna show up at the opening and that it should not be just like (laughs) an exercise in beautification. Right. You know, and so he wanted complicated work, apparently. And so they wanted this work in the show. And I was deeply honored. Like, where else am I going to show this but Montreal? Right. right. That's right. So they commissioned me to finish it. And in the midst of all this, Leonard passes away. Things start to become a little more complicated because now all the work needs to pass through his management. The management finds out about the work and nothing happens. I see you in... Right. Jerusalem while I'm filming the scenes of Leonard in the 1973 war, but with a lookalike who I've brought to Ramallah, you know, where now Leonard is just kind of like in hell, you know, in this like purgatory of uh, trying to decide what's going to happen. And I'm also rehearsing with the Palestinian band for a gig that would happen in October of 2017. And then towards the end of the rehearsals, it becomes clear that the band has gotten cold feet and that they have real trepidations about singing Leonard's songs in Mm. Palestine. And that it's a safety issue because of what the work means now to people. Not only is there the 2009, you know, concert that never never happens, but then 
that very same picture that I found online that sparked the whole project was licensed by Leonard Cohen's manager to be part of a mural that is, uh, I don't know if it's still there at Ben Gurion Airport, but it's there in the arrivals and departures area. Which is the main airport in Israel. Yeah. And this um, mural has that picture underneath the heading, Zionism is a universal ideal. And so it's a, a propagandistic, propagandistic poster where suddenly the music and the image was owned essentially by the Zionist narrative. It was a kind of alluding in a way. Right. And I couldn't force people to listen to the music in a way that was different. And, um, and then in around that same time in October, November 2017, Walla.com, which is an Israeli news website, published a report that Leonard's music was being used to torture Palestinian prisoners. And um, and Electronic Intifada, I think, also reported this or or made some reference to it. Which is a Palestinian website that's been published very vocal. Yes, for, for, for almost two decades now, yeah, I think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was very clear that to sing Leonard Cohen in Palestine would be like, um, you know, a Jew in the Warsaw ghetto listening to Wagner. And so it was something where the film that I made then concludes with me performing one song on a stage in an empty theater. Wow. And it's Leonard Cohen's If It Be Your Will, which really is about voice and about the breath in one's lungs being a kind of potential for words to be uttered but being held in a place of indeterminacy. So the first line of the song is, if it be your will that I speak no more and my voice be still as it was before, I will speak no more, I shall abide until I am spoken for, if it be your will. So if you want me to sing, I'll sing. And if you don't want me to sing, not singing is a choice, you know? So right. like non-participation is a choice. That's right. Sometimes not going forward is the right thing to do. Right. And so it was shown in Montreal. I got a considerable amount of hate mail for it. Oh, you did? Um, yeah. Yeah. There from were, who mostly? Um, from people that were very right wing coming from, you know, the, um, I would say even beyond the Likud camp in terms of diasporic, you know, support of the Israeli state. And then it was clear to me from the curators that every time Leonard's manager entered my installation that he was kind of furious. And so when the show closed, and I guess it was the spring of last year, the question was what it's going to do to tour. Mm -hmm. And so they said, well, we want the piece as part of the tour, but Leonard's manager is furious, so you have to talk to him about it. So the curators basically left me out <laughs> to deal with uh, this on my own. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the support, right? right. You know. And then uh, Leonard's manager met with me, and it was a cordial meeting, and he just more or less, you know, to distill it all, more or less said that he felt it was reductivist. It didn't tell Leonard's side of the story, <laughs> and that he had agreed to a concert in Ramallah. And that he wanted that concert to happen. And I told him I wasn't going to force the music down the throats of the Palestinians. Right. And in terms of the other side of the story, I mean, I'm sorry, we're living in the other side of the story, you know, right. and I wasn't going to change the work. And so I, I was given a choice to change it or I'd be forced to withdraw. So I withdrew. And so now there's a big question about whether or not this work can be shown, how can it be shown, but I'm actually interested in that as a material. Right, yeah. You know? Of well, because you, it's sort of the future, too, isn't it? Right. I mean, if we're going to have contentious debates and difficult discussions, right. these shouldn't be the issues that trip us up. Right. 
Right. You know? Exactly. What low hanging fruit is right? this? Right. I know? mean, it's like yeah. this is not even that complicated. It's right. really just. I mean, I'm going to be frank. Who the hell's the manager? You know what right. I mean to decide right. the intellectual property. But that's just my take. So right. Well, I mean, you know, uh, if people in show business are, you know, they they all understand it. They're like, well, you know, it's his brand. And I, I'm of, I'm of the belief that like when you make art. It starts to seep into the world. It's not yours That's right. anymore. That's right. You know, and and this is something that I wrote to Leonard because at the end of the letter, I say, I don't know why I'm asking your permission. Who owns a song? And actually, Leonard has this beautiful apocryphal story that he tells about how when he was here in New York, he lost the rights for Suzanne, his most popular song. And he says, you know, and it's probably right that I lost the rights for it because right. uh, just the other day I heard Sailor singing it on the Caspian Sea, you know, and it's like, <laughs> please live up to those words, you know, like actually mean what you say. And, right. and I believe that though, you know, like it has me thinking about an artist's legacy and what we do, you know, how should we prepare for the time when we're no longer here? Right. And how can the public experience our work? You know, and I'm I'm starting to think about like what would it mean for things to become public domain, like a folk song. Right. You know? Right. You know, that's that's a choice I'm thinking of making, but I also think that like in a way you can't stop it. Right. You know? Like this stuff he might be able to get me on certain things if I sell it or if I do this or I do that, but in the end, somebody in Palestine is gonna sing, right. you know everybody knows and so that to me yeah. becomes you know a really interesting material of the work but i you know i am interested in that you asked me what i do at the beginning of this conversation and i think that what i do also is i go slow mm. and when i go slow things happen in the work and the right. work ends up reacting to the things that happen it's not like i try to brush them under the table it's not right. like i try to just kind of fix it I become very interested, like when I imported dates as part of a project called Return in 2006. The short story is that the dates end up traveling the same trajectory as the Iraqi refugees and they never get here. Right. You know, and so some people could say, oh, it's a failure. And for me, it's anything but. It's an unexpected result. Right. You know, and it, I asked a question and I got an answer. Right. You know, and so in this case, I'm interested in. And seeing how to go through with the next steps of this without being sued for libel. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So the show traveled here to the Jewish Museum in New York, and yeah. your work is not in the show. It is not in the show, no. So how did that process work? So do you talk to the manager, and the manager just didn't get permission, so it couldn't go with the work? I mean, what did that look like? Well, what it looked like was I was put into a position where I, I had to voluntarily withdraw because the only way going forward would have been for him to basically be an editor. And, you know, Got and it. he wrote things like, I look forward to helping you complete your work. You know, like when the right. Emperor tells Luke Skywalker in Return of the Jedi, <laughs> I look forward to completing your training. It's like, <laughs> this is where you jump down that big shaft and say no, you know. For me, it was just not a situation that I think I was misreading. I mean, he was telling me between the lines legalistically what he What's was going happen? to allow. Yep. And and it was, uh, you know, I wrote a letter to the curators and said that I would not be joining the tour. And so wow. it's opened here and I won't be visiting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I said complicated, I meant it. You yeah. know, at the beginning, yeah. it's just because you really create these sort of, and the interesting thing for me is they're kind of beautifully simple ideas, 
Mm. in some ways Mm -hmm. because you know they sort of like worm into your brain and you're like oh what a beautiful idea you know i mean everything from like you know saddam hussein's you know uh star wars star (laughs) or or just you know or like it doesn't matter it's like all these like beautiful ideas that sort of show up and they sort of like worm their way in but then you find how they exist in the world to be difficult Mm -hmm. where's that tendency coming from for you that's a good question. I mean, I, I was very, very affected by architecture when I was a student. And one of the things that I loved about architecture was the unbuilt project, visionary architecture. Yeah. And it was usually the architect's best project because that's, right. that's where everything's on the line. It's what they believe. You know, their social vision, their structural vision demands a culture capable of its existence. And of course, it can't be because of city's laws or like the laws of gravity, you know, and (laughs) cost of materials, exactly all these things. I mean, but I loved it. I loved being able to see that kind of poetic critique of reality and that wish, Mm. you know. And so, and so, you know, her response was like, if, if wanting this or that is impossible, then we demand the impossible. And it mm. was, it was like a poem, like yeah. the way that she recited it. And I think that demanding the impossible is something that I'm, I kind of feel an unapologetic, you know, kind of draw towards. And, and I think in my works, what I've tried to do is to set up those prototypical situations where I can make that seemingly impossible thing happen. As an artwork, you know, to be able to do something as crazy as import one ton of dates that no importer exporter in their right mind would try to do, mm-hmm. you know, from from Iraq, from a war zone in 2006. And it becomes something that can only exist in that frame as an artwork. It can't exist as an import export project. Right. You know, so I try to make those things happen. And that's one of the reasons why I also feel very lucky to have worked in conjunction and in collaboration with other fields, whether it's like international trade or the field of archaeology or architecture. So I want to talk a little bit about that privileging of art sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, because I think we were talking about being in Palestine and in Israel. And it's funny. It's like when you're crossing borders and you tell the people at the border you're an artist or an art person or you went to go see museums somehow we get a pass not that i'm complaining right do you know at all right but i'm kind of curious why the privileging of that like why is that okay well if we were to say we're importing exporting dates there would be all these obstacles and hurdles but Mm -hmm. you're saying i'm importing this for an exhibition at a museum in wherever Oh, well, let me clarify. So I I actually, in order to do this, had to reopen my grandfather's import-export company from Iraq okay. uh, that he brought over with him when they emigrated to the United States in the 1940s. There was no way of doing this as an artwork. There wasn't an excuse oh, at all. So it was the opposite. It was the opposite, but I had huh. funding. You know, I had right. like the New York Foundation for the Arts like gave me a grant for architecture and environmental structures, and I actually had to show <laughs> I had to show them a picture of the dates piled up in boxes and say that that is both architecture and an environmental structure right there. <laughs> but I had cultural money to work with that allowed me to do something that like somebody who's trying to be a functional importer exporter and make a living would never be able to do got it i stand corrected no 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 but i think what you're saying is actually quite interesting because my experience with telling people i'm an artist has been hit or miss and Mm. especially when crossing a border into place like palestine all they needed to hear was that i was doing a project 
in East Jerusalem with an organization called Al-Mamal and also teaching at the Art Academy in Palestine in 2010 for them to strip search me and detain right. me for hours. And now whenever I go, I'm not saying this as a way of, uh, of you know, uh, wearing it like a badge of courage or anything, but it's the reality that like now I'm always detained, you right. know, because it doesn't matter that I'm an artist. It's actually part of the problem, right? you know, because whenever a school is set up, you know, in a place that's like Palestine, you know, the last thing they want is the people to be educated. That's where a lot of the activism generates from. We've seen it here in the United States. So one thing that I talked to Emily Jasser about was I was astonished at the Art Academy in Palestine that most of my male students had all been in jail at one point or another. And it wasn't because they were doing armed resistance. It was because they were showing up at protests or whatever, or, you know, going places that were dangerous because of the dissemination of knowledge. Sometimes wrong place, wrong time. Right. But I think art, I think it depends on the place. I mean, was it your experience in Jerusalem that you got in easy? I got it. I mean, just because they're like, what are you doing in Palestine? You know, what are you doing? They on said the, the word churches? Palestine? Well, oh, no, they didn't, okay. of course. Yeah, I yeah, mean, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they probably said Ramallah. I yeah. don't remember these conversations. Yeah. So, so, but I said, well, I was going to the Palestinian Museum. And they're like, and they're like, what do they show? Uh-huh. And I was like, contemporary art. And they're like, really? And I was like, yeah, you should go. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean. Do you know what I mean? It was absurd. Yeah. And then they're like, who did you meet? Who did mm-hmm. you? I mean, all that stuff. But somehow I did feel like it made it a little like safer. Yeah. Maybe they didn't have the checkbox or something. I don't know what it was. Right. So that's what I was trying to figure out with you right. as an example. So. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that when I feel like it's going to be. Uh, hard to explain what I do. You know, sometimes it's easier to say I'm a teacher. Right. You know, and that's not, you know, necessarily the example of Palestine, but like, you know, Turkey or wherever else. But I think that, you know, I'm interested to know more about what you want to unpack in that privilege, you know, because I do think that there's something there. Right. Like we seem to presume that we have some kind of, I don't know, a carte blanche that other professions don't allow for and being able to kind of like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to this place and it's in the middle of the war, a war, but I'm going as an artist, you know? I feel like it's also the proximity to power we have in Mm. the arts community. Even though we're not a big community and we're not necessarily a wealthy, at least not all of us are wealthy or something, we're adjacent to privilege and to power and to money Mm. in a way that I think sort of emboldens us. Hmm. I wonder. Just throwing it out there. Yeah. And frankly, it gives us that privilege of being able to call someone and getting something through or getting the right lawyer to give you advice. Or <laughs> oh. Well, if there are lawyers who are willing to give me advice about this Leonard Cohen film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Contact us and we'll connect you. Yeah. They'll, they'll yeah. work. Yeah. So I want to ask you why you think it's important to go to Palestine and work there. It's not an easy place. To no. Work. And it does open you up for a lot of criticism sometimes from many sides. Mm-hmm. But, you know, particularly when you're walking into an area that's internationally sort of seen as an occupied territory. Now, why do you go? Well, I go because I had an excellent reason to visit people that I care about, whether it's Jack Persekian at the Al-Mamal Foundation for Contemporary Art, which is a Palestinian organization in East Jerusalem, or to visit Emily Jasser and to come at the invitation of like the International Art Academy of Palestine, which she helped co-found, and also for a place like Dar Jasser. Mm-hmm. And I think that making art in those places is something 
something that exists like anywhere else. I mean, to say that art doesn't have a place in these cities under siege is just kind of like a further dehumanization of the people that live there and a kind of uh, spectacularization of this violent image that we always have of places. And for me, I really enjoy teaching art to people for whom the stakes are high. And that goes for people here in the States, you know, who are you know, going to school and they're taking it super seriously. They might be the first in their generation uh, or the first in their family, the first generation in their family to go to school. It may be uh, at a community college where somebody's, you know, getting a second chance to go to school after not working out, you know, and in a place like Palestine, it's like, you know, they're taking four years and resistance or sumud or steadfastness for them is uh, is going into the making of work. And so I think that it's a way of me broadening my, my understanding of art and my experience of teaching art as an instructor. But I also have, you know, some very real historical and autobiographical connection to that place. And it comes from my grandparents on my mother's side, being Arab Jews from Baghdad who were there for millennia and suffering the heartbreak of having to leave when nationalist programs in the Middle East made it impossible for them to stay there. Right. You know, I grew up in a house where all the food was Iraqi, and it was the music that was at the family functions were the classic Iraqi songs like Chal Chal or Fog al And this was normal to me, you know, in a way, I I just thought it was Jewish. But then, like, I had a matzo ball at somebody's house, you know, and you're like, what is this? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it was something I really embraced once I realized that, like, when the first Gulf War was happening in 91, that those green tinted CNN images were placing all of the stories that my grandmother told me about that city at risk. And so... At 16, you start to ask a lot of questions, and the question around Israel, which never really got asked, you know, coming from suburban New York, where I was growing up, made it clear to me that the disappearance of the Arab Jew happens at the same time that there's a disappearance of Palestine. And so those two... Those two moments intersect. And so I'm deeply, I'm not just deeply interested, I feel deeply connected right. to that culture. And it's not, you know, like there is not a difference between a place like Ramallah and Baghdad, but there is connection. There's quite a lot of connection. And and I feel deeply connected to it, deeply interested in it. And I also believe that our liberation and our struggle for that liberation is is intertwined and i find it an imperative on, on many different levels you know and it's not simply something that i feel like is the work that i must do it's also the work that i want to do you know I, it's a way of reconnecting with those spaces that my grandparents made for us when they could no longer live in baghdad and tried to kind of make the house that they moved into in great neck new york representative of it well, thank you, Michael. This has been excellent. Thank you. And I've been really enjoyed talking to you. And thank you for making the art world a very interesting and complicated <laughs> and nuanced place. Thank you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> This episode is pretty special. 
because it's the first time the music throughout has been that of the artist himself. A special thanks to Michael Rakowitz for sharing his many talents with hyperallergic listeners. Now, one last thing. We're going to end this podcast, which, as you can tell, is longer than most of the interviews we've done because, frankly, I found it really hard to edit down what he said. Everything seems important and clear. He's a natural at this. Well, we're ending with the artist reading the letter he wrote to Leonard Cohen himself, which he mailed to the singer before he died in 2016. I'm Hrag Vartanya the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening. And now, again, Michael Rakowitz. August 14th, 2015. Dear Leonard, I hope this letter finds you well. I'm typing it on your green Olivetti 22 Latera typewriter, a prize eBay acquisition for which I paid dearly. I've been trying to contact you through your representative, Robert Corey, since November 2012, In his response, he said that you and I should meet and that we have much to talk about as artists. Sadly, I've not heard any further, so I'm reaching out once more. I don't know if you could simply consider me a fan. I'm a very great admirer of your work, although I came to it late, in order to romance a girl from your hometown of Montreal. Proselytization finally occurred during your concert at the Chicago Theater in May 2009, I was taken in by your humility. Your poignant utterances renewed my faith in poetry's potential to change the world. During the encore, you coyly recited the traditional Hebrew Birchat Koanim blessing in everyday language, a kind of farewell that was bestowed upon an audience of mixed backgrounds with a simple warning that we should bundle up because the weather was tricky, that if we should fall, may it be on the side of luck, a wish for us to be surrounded by loved ones, and if this was not our lot in life, that the blessings find us in our solitude. I never felt more Jewish in my entire life. I've sat through many concerts and 44 Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur sermons. This was the pinnacle of any live collective event I can recall to memory. Later that same year, I traveled to Jerusalem to make an artwork of my own with a Palestinian organization called Al-Mamal Foundation for Contemporary Art. I was elated to find out that you were scheduled to play in Ramallah in September at the invitation of the Palestinian Prisoners Club. But then the restrictions of the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel forced the gig's cancellation, as you were also scheduled to play Tel Aviv that month just days after your 75th birthday. A statement issued by the boycott explained the reason for the cancellation of the concert in Ramallah. Attempts at parody not only immorally equate the oppressor with the oppressed, taking a neutral stance on the oppression, they also are an insult to the Palestinian people, as they assume that we are naive enough to accept such token shows of solidarity that are solely intended to cover up grave acts of collusion in whitewashing Israel's crimes. Those sincerely interested in defending Palestinian rights and taking a moral and courageous stance against the Israeli occupation and apartheid should not play Israel, period. That is the minimum form of solidarity Palestinian civil society has called for. 
Leonard, I believe boycotts are problematic. I think that politics can obliterate art, but I also think that art can create facts and bring to light truths that are suppressed. Your words have had great impact around the world, and in particular in the Arab world in West Asia. Palestinian director Ilya Suleiman features your recording of First We Take Manhattan during the climax of his lyrical film Chronicle of a Disappearance. Your prose is quoted by poets and artists from Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon. Two collections of your poems have been translated into Farsi and published in Iran, where Jewish poets are not well represented. Both editions sold out within hours. Art obliterates politics. Seepages of this kind have happened before. Music can be the ultimate circumvention. Even if it's forbidden, it finds a way. Like the colors of the Palestinian flag, banned by Israel but remobilized by Palestinians holding up slices of watermelon in protest. Unrelenting red flesh, promising black seeds, and protective white and green rind. I think of your music being heard in Palestine, and I think of Israelis who love to hear Um Kulthum's music, circumventing boundaries and nationalist ideologies, bouncing around on radio waves like ships passing on an open ocean. I've never been interested in being perfect, neither morally or ethically. I'm interested in the real, the contradictions and the resultant tensions that are created within the self. I think about you, the you who was born in 1934, and the 11-year-old boy who in 1945 saw footage of the inferno that was the Holocaust. A tragic truth, and one that led to overwhelming support for a Jewish homeland, for a Europe in exile. Your desire to balance your presence playing in both Ramallah and Tel Aviv is one that I therefore understand. I was raised in suburban New York, and there seemed no logical reason to not support Zionism. Then in college, I was introduced to the facts of an indigenous people's dispossession and humiliation, the cost of constructing a Jewish homeland. I saw footage of the atrocities committed at the Sabra and Shatila refugee camps in Lebanon in 1982. Cognitive dissonance set in. I'm currently working on a project about you, titled, I'm good at love, I'm good at hate, it's in between I freeze. The title is, of course, taken from your poem, A Thousand Kisses Deep. This paralysis of the middle is the moment that captivates me. I feel it too, and I think many Jews around the world who are faced with the ethical crisis of what Israel is and what Israel does feel it as well. The project may or may not be a film. It centers on your participation in the 1973 Yom Kippur War as a kind of warrior poet. You were 39 years old, and you traveled to Tel Aviv from Hydra, Greece, to, as you said, stop Egypt's bullet. Believing that the future of the Jewish people was at stake, you positioned yourself firmly in the line of fire. Photos of these performances exist, including one taken on October 22, 1973, 
the day I was born. As the story goes, you were spotted in Café Pinotti in Tel Aviv by the singer Oshik Levy, who was dining with Alana Rovina, Pupa Garnon, and Mari Kaspi. Levy approached to ask what you were doing in Israel at such a time. You responded that you didn't really know, only that you couldn't stay away. Maybe you would work on a kibbutz and replace somebody who had been called to war. Levy told you that entertaining troops would be a much bigger service, and he invited you to join him and the others at his table to perform for the Israeli soldiers fighting on the front lines. Initially, you declined, thinking you'd ruin their morale. You said, My songs are sad. Music to slit one's wrist to, according to one review. Another critic called me the Prince of Bummers. Egypt has Um Kultum. You'll lose the war. After being assured that it would be okay, you agreed and joined Levy and other entertainers to form a group called the Geneva Conference, touring military bases throughout Israel. You wrote that the performances were ad hoc, with soldiers shining flashlights on the singers, and that it was very informal and very intense. On one occasion, you played for a group of soldiers gathered around a cannon. Introducing So Long Marianne, you explained that this song should be listened to at home with a drink in one hand and your other arm around a woman you love. You said, I hope you'll have that soon. Just as you were finishing the first verse, you were interrupted by an Israeli officer who ordered the cannon to be lifted and shot in the direction of Egypt. Please continue, the officer said. You were shaken, but you collected yourself and resumed singing. You crossed the Suez Canal and set up at an abandoned Egyptian airbase. There you found a poster of Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and a can of mashed potatoes labeled A Gift from the People of Canada. A helicopter arrived. Wounded and dead men were brought onto the base. You looked at them and began to weep. An Israeli soldier comforted you by saying, Do not be sad. They are Egyptians. The sense of relief you felt disturbed you. Your final stop was Ismailia, where you were told that the only architecture is tanks. There, you were introduced to a general, Ariel Sharon, the lion of the desert. Under your breath, you asked him, How dare you? He did not repent. You drank some cognac together, sitting on the sand in the shade of a tank. You wrote, I want his job. Months after you left, in an interview with Robin Pike of the British rock magazine Zigzag, you reflected on your time on the battlefield. War is wonderful, you said. They'll never stamp it out. It's one of the few times people can act their best. It's so economical in terms of gesture and motion. There are opportunities to feel things you simply cannot feel in modern city life. Everybody is responsible for his brother. Leonard, I've pulled some documentation together about this period of time in your life, 
but I'm too unsettled to allow it all to rest politely as a documentary. Let me explain. My grandparents fled Baghdad in 1946 for political reasons. I grew up hearing my grandmother recount stories of that city, a remembrance of a lost home. As Jews living in Baghdad in the 1940s, my grandparents' lives became increasingly difficult as the tide of politics turned and the British mandate for the partition of Palestine grew closer and closer to becoming a reality. Their land was confiscated, their assets taken, and their lives changed forever. In some ways, a good forever. In many ways, a sad forever. My grandparents spoke Arabic, and traditional foods during the holidays were qabba, mhasha, and aruk. They were Jews, but they were also Iraqis, until they were told they could no longer be Iraqi. Looking through old photographs recently, I came across several of my grandfather wearing a kafiyah. It reinforced for me that we were actually Arabs, Arab Jews. This term existed in the world until 1948. Now, it seems like an oxymoron. I'm not interested in arguments and accusations about who is responsible for which exodus and who suffered more at whose hands and when. But the well-documented programs that sought to de-Arabize Arab Jews upon their arrival in Israel was another act of cultural erasure. The existence of the State of Israel could not be possible without a choreography of historical narratives that does not always intersect with truth. A land without a people for a people without a land, goes the saying. Well, there were people there. Every Jewish institution that I have ever known has displayed the Hebrew inscription, Zachor, remember. As a Jew, I cannot support a Zionist position because of what it forgets. I'm therefore asking your permission, Leonard, to remember, to illuminate truth. As a Jewish artist who has written many letters declining invitations to exhibit in Israel, as a signatory of the academic and cultural boycott, I ask your permission to perform the concert you planned in Ramallah as a culmination of this project. I do not wish to normalize your decision to play in Tel Aviv or for Israeli soldiers four decades ago. Rather, I want to know if your music can be salvaged and under what terms. I wonder if singing Leonard Cohen in Palestine is akin to playing Wagner in the Warsaw Ghetto. But if the Palestinian people will permit me, I hope to breathe new life into your words from my lungs, Arab-Jewish lungs that will not sing in Israel and to reincarnate, not reenact, the humanism that some believe was emptied out of your work. This is not meant to be an attempt at correction. You came from the West and made a choice. I approach from the East and make another. But I am heartened, for it is you who once wrote, I can't run no more with that lawless crowd while the killers in high places say their prayers out loud. But they've summoned a thundercloud, and they're going to hear from me. Perhaps I don't need to ask your permission. Who owns a song? 
Reflecting on the pilfered rights to Suzanne, you said, It's probably appropriate that I don't own this song. Just the other day, I heard some people singing it on a ship in the Caspian Sea. Indeed, your songs are now part of public space. They belong to the world. I don't know why I'm writing to you, then. I suppose it's about honor among artists. I see the conflict in you and the conflict in me, and think that somehow we can blend and have it both ways. We can't have it both ways. I want you to know that in war, sometimes the good guys lose, and that maybe you sang for the enemy. I guess I want you to know that the way you feel feels normal to me, but that normal is no excuse. I will go now and stop Israel's bullet. Sincerely, Michael. Mm-hmm. 